everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. This week's episode is dedicated in prayer for the full recovery of Sharona Rachel Bat Miriam Chana. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Today we open up the Book of Dream, and I am honored to hand over the mic to Rivi Frankel, tour guide and Matan educator, who will be hosting the episodes for the duration of the Book of Dream. Rivi, it's great to be in conversation with you today. Yosefa, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm really excited to be taking over for Safer Devarim, and I appreciate you trusting me with this. So our theme for Safer Devarim is titled Dora Hemsheikh, Messages for a Lifetime. Each episode is going to explore Moshe's educational message for the Jewish people as they prepare to enter the land of Israel. Each week's guest will be someone who her herself has learned at Matan, like you and me, and is now passing on educational messages to the next generation of Torah students. So if you take a look at the structure of Devarim as a Sefer, we can break the book into three main sections. Chapters 1 to 4 are an historical introduction. Chapters 5 to 30 we can call the main speech, or maybe even the mitzvah speech, and then the conclusion, which is chapters 31 through 34. In episode 96, you and Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman discussed the ancient covenant between a sovereign and a vassal, noting that the formula of these contracts can be seen in Sefer Shemot. Here too we can see that there are parallels. Ancient covenants begin with the historical background as to why the two parties are entering into an agreement followed by stipulations laid out by the sovereign. Moshe begins his speech by reminding the people, most of whom were not present themselves at Sinai, about the shared history between God and Bnei Israel that led to the creation of this covenant. Then he reminds the people of the stipulations of the agreement, what God expects of them, and what they can in turn expect from God. Like other ancient treaties, Moshe's speeches include blessings, curses, promises by the sovereign of what will happen should the treaty be kept or should the vassal fail to keep up their end of the bargain. Specifically in this week's Parsha, we hear Moshe's historical prologue. Moshe details the places the people have traveled throughout the desert. Then he seems to digress, discussing the appointment of judges when he can no longer handle the people, for they have grown too large. Next, Moshe discusses the sin of the spies and the punishment of that generation not being allowed into the land. This is followed by recounts of events more recent to the people in their memory. Ammon and Moab refusing the Jews' entry into their land, the war with Sihon and Og, and the settling of the tribal lands on the other side of the Jordan. The Parsha ends with the message of Chizok to Yoshua, not to fear because God will fight his battles for him. And maybe that's actually a good segue as you're passing on this podcast to me, that I shouldn't be too nervous because Be'ezrat Hashem, we are going to be sharing beautiful ideas of Torah. But I'm wondering if you can maybe jump in a little bit to explain how you see this historical context 
and the reason that we need a book that's called Mishnah Torah. Okay, so I think, first of all, maybe it's the least exciting explanation, but I think the most realistic, basic level is exactly what you said right now uh, about the historical prologues of these treaties. We're meeting this new generation, uh, assumingly all those who weren't able to enter the land have died out except for Moshe Rabbeinu. He must be very lonely at this moment in time. And and so we have to sort of set the stage. And, and a, as you explained, the new generation has to accept the covenant. These covenants don't just continue on their own. They have to be reaccepted by the new generation. So I think that that's really the, the most basic answer as to why Sefer Dvarim opens, opens up this way. But I also think that there are perhaps other explanations that uh, that are also important, and they sort of we can hold them uh, we can hold them together with both of our hands as we open up the book of Darim. I think that on a very basic level, because we have people who were born at all different times throughout the wilderness experience, they're simply not all updated about what happened in these past years. You know, I think about even my own family who, you know, children born in in relatively close intervals, but they all have a very different experience about what this family was like. I just 20 minutes ago was putting some of my children to sleep and two of them were asking me to hear birth stories of theirs. And, and I was telling my third daughter about the time that I brought her to friends of ours with her older sisters in order to go give birth while it was in the middle of one of the lockdowns in Corona. And she was like, really? We went to their house. And, you know, for her, it was like this, this memory she doesn't even really have. Whereas, of course, if I ask my older children, they'll remember exactly what they remember, exactly what they were given for dinner because they'd never been left alone like that with with friends and they couldn't go to their grandparents and and they remember watching a Ishai Rubo concert because he was performing alone in Susia uh, during the lockdown. I mean, they'll remember it. But even within a two or three year span, people remember very, very different things. And it has to do with their place in family and all of those details. And so when I think about the 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 people, the Israelites born throughout the desert period, they must have all had a very different experience of what it meant to live in the wilderness. Some of them experienced uh, plagues and famine, or sort of not famine, but drought times. And some of them experienced maybe many years of quiet, those 38 years of big question mark of maybe everything was great, so we don't hear about anything. And, and so I feel like when Moshe gets up and sort of gives this historical introduction, he wants to make sure that everybody is updated, meaning not just legally, but he wants to make sure that on an emotional, even I would say like familial kind of level, he wants to make sure that everybody is updated about at least the events he wants everyone to know, right? Of course, it's a very specific narration of the events he chooses to tell over. And there are others that clearly don't make it in there. But but he wants to, again, on a very simple level, sort of make sure that we're all starting from, from the same place. And if I could think of another parallel in life is that, you know, when it, one of the biggest tools that I feel, one of the, the best tools I feel I gain from like from academic study is that before you ever write a paper, you have to do what's called a survey of the literature. Okay. And the more monstrous these papers become, or if ever becomes a doctorate, the more obnoxiously large and long that introduction has, that survey of literature has to be. And the survey of the literature is like the way we speak about it through the language of Chazal is sort of like uh, you know, know where you came from. Um, right? You have to know from where from where you 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 grew and you you sprang from. And I feel that that's another sort of function of what Moshe is doing here now is that he, before they go into Eretz Israel, 
they have to know where they came from. When you write these, you know, big, big academic papers, you need to know exactly what was done before you so that you're very clear on what your goal is and what your contribution is to that conversation. And so I feel that, again, another function of what Moshe is doing is letting Am Yisrael know based on where they've been and where they've traveled throughout these years, what their mission is going going from here forward. Does that make, does that make sense? Totally. It actually makes me think of two things. First of all, the parallel between the fact that Shema, the word, the root word, the Shoresh, and also what we have in our liturgy, the actual prayer of Shema, is such a focus in the book of Devarim. And when we see the words Vishinantam Levanecha and that same root connection to the word Mishnah Torah, that what you're saying is that we have to continue to accept this covenant by every generation. And in order to do that, we sometimes as adults make assumptions that the next generation just knows that somehow they've just like gathered that information. It's in their DNA. And it's really important to take that pause and to say, wait, we actually need to talk about this. We actually need to make sure that we're on the same page. The other thing that it makes me think of, and it's a question that I'd like to throw back to you, is that if Moshe being here is trying to put everybody on the same page, then why are there so many differences between this account and the account in other places in the Torah? Even just in this week's Parsha, but we really see it across the Sefer. In this week's Parsha, we have it with the spies, where we see some really fundamental differences in the historical account. And so if this is about a retelling of history, then why is it so different? Okay, so let me jump one step back and then we'll jump one step forward together. Uh, going one step back is that I also just wanted to mention the idea that we know psychologically from a lot of research that's been done on this, that the more a person is rooted in their f- knowledge of their family backgrounds, the the sort of the more likely they have of a better outcome, meaning they're going to be more psychologically healthy and sound children who know where they come from, even if they're coming from families that say that aren't whole uh, in raising them, but they know where they came from. They know their roots. They know who their grandparents are. They know their stories, even if they're refugee stories, that those children have much better indicators for where they'll be able to go forward in all different ways that we sort of measure the ideas of success. Yeah. It's actually a study about resilience specifically. What makes children resilient? And it was a study that was done in the late 90s. Um, It echoes that basically what you're saying, that it was about a shared family history and overcoming obstacles and knowing that their immediate ancestors had overcome obstacles. That's what gave the children more resistance to deal with challenges, whether you're talking about normal everyday challenges that people need resilience for or uh, extreme challenges and, and challenging environments. Okay, so that's the study I'm referring to, but I forgot that it was about resilience. So thankfully you knew that. And so, but you know, Rivi, so before we even talk about this idea of Mishnah Torah, I think it's really, really uh, important to bring in the fact that many of the commentators, without knowing that study, obviously, and resilience in the 90s, say something very similar. They say, why does why does Moshe repeat all of this? Right before we get to the question of why the details different, why does Moshe repeat all of this? The Rashbam asks all, all all these different commentators, and and they basically all say something very very similar. Uh, I'll read I'll read one example. So, for example, Rav Hurst says this in his commentary on the fifth 
the fifth verse of the first chapter of Dvarim, and also uh, Shadal says it, Rav Shlomo David Lutzato, I'll read him because he's shorter, uh, and he says that, Moshe ma'arich k'tzat b'sipur g'dulat ha'nitzachon sh'natan lehem Hashem. Right, Moshe really sort of elaborates here on all the victories that Hashem grants us in the wilderness. Sh'natan b'yadam shnei melachim adirim, right, that we were able to sort of, uh, sort of overcome these two great kings of Sichon and Og, and he says, v'chol ze l'chazek et lev ha'am, it's all meant to strengthen the heart of the nation. Right? So in, or, if they remember all of the victories they've had in the desert, they'll then feel much more confident that God will help them in the land of Israel. So I feel like that really dovetails so nicely the, the study that you mentioned about resilience because, because they know that God was there for them in the past, they're lo- more likely to have faith that God will be with them in the future. So I feel like that's such a go- great sort of ancient uh, way of describing a very similar thing that we see regarding children uh, and their and the grounding that they that they are able to draw upon when they know about their family so that that's just a really important piece i feel also is like a little bit of an important like tribal thing going on here like Moshe wants us to be proud and strong and sort of come into this very scary period of conquering Eretz Israel and feeling that we, we're carrying all of that with us. We're carrying those victories. We're carrying uh, God, God's help. But your question is really about why, why the differences. And I think that, I guess maybe uh, I would offer an idea that's sort of more, I don't know, philosophical or, or sort of a broader idea. And may, maybe you'll have something to add in terms of the details. Um, that the broader idea is actually one that we brought up last year. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Blau brought it up in our episode on Dvarim. Uh, he brought it through the lens of Rav Tzadok Milublin. But as I was preparing for this conversation of ours, I actually saw that uh, several Parshanim uh, quote this idea. And the idea being, it, and they base it, a lot of them, on, on a very interesting pasuk. Again, the fifth uh, the fifth pasuk, that Ho'il Moshe Be'er, right? That this is what Moshe explained. It's sort of still part of this like meta introduction. The first five pasukim are sort of like this meta introduction to the book of Dream. And, and then they said, and this is how Moshe explained things. And and so I'm I'm just was looking up in the Sfat Emet on, on Parshat Varim. And he basically says that Sefer Dvarim is the beginning of Torah Shabal Peh. Okay? And that the purpose of Dvarim is not to be a, you know, a, a, a copy. It's not a carbon copy of the Torah, which obviously we know that because there's so many differences also legally and also in the narratives between the book of Dvarim and the rest of, of the Torah. But he says it very, very clearly. I'll just read two lines from what he says. He says, Achen Moshe Rabbeinu alav ha-shalom, haya ha-matchil ve-ase mishne Torah, shehi hitchavrut Torah shebalpeh, el Torah shebikhtav. He says that Moshe Rabbeinu was the one who started this idea of sort of the quote-unquote repetition, and the point of it was to connect the Torah shebikhtav, that which was written, with that which would be spoken and learned out through learning or through speech afterward. Uh, and he says specifically that this is what was necessary in Eretz Yisrael, that only when Am Yisrael gets to Eretz Yisrael can they have or can they maintain or can they further elaborate a Torah Shabal Peh. And he says that what Moshe does here, even though he doesn't go into Israel, his job is to verbally sort of extrapolate and elaborate on, on what's written in the Torah. And so just to state the obvious, when we say something over for a second time, it never comes out the same, right? 
Things never never come out the same. But I think what Moshe does in many places is actually very intentional, meaning I think he purposefully changes some of the details in some of the stories. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that and some of the differences between them. I think it's really ironic in this parallel that you're raising between Torah Shabbat Pet and Moshe's Mishnah Torah. Because one of the things that I've always thought about is that we have to earn it, right? Whether that was that we had to earn it because of the way that it was passed down originally, where you really had to remember it and work and go it over and over again and make sure that you had it exactly right, or whether in today's form we have to work to decode it. And I think it's really interesting that with the person coming directly after Moshe, with Yoshua, that here Moshe is really clear with his directions and he's really clear with what his point is. Don't be afraid, you've got this. Hashem is with you. Don't be afraid of the people. Don't be afraid of what's going on in Israel. Hashem is behind everything. And Moshe is very explicit in this message to Yoshua. But then when it comes to the Jewish people, and very rightly what I think you said in terms of that his differences were intentional, you have to earn his message. And it's not just an explicit, here's what happened, and here's my take on it, and here's what you should get out of it, and oh, this is what you should do, and this is how everything should look. It's the beginning of this kind of puzzle and this code that we have to tease out for ourselves throughout the generations. And I think that maybe part of the beauty is that Yoshua had a very specific mission in a very specific time. He had a job that he needed to complete. And Moshe's speech and really all of the Sefer, I think, is timeless. It's true that it's set in a specific time and place, but I think it's about all of the generations. And so if each of us can kind of tease out our own meaning from these puzzles, I think that's also part of potentially what's going on here. And so when you talk about it being the beginning of Torah Shabbat Peh, I think there's something very fitting about that. Yeah, and I, I think that that the the differences in the in the recollecting about the stories, you know, and specifically about the spies. Well, did, did Moshe initiate it? Did the people initiate it? What was God's role in that, in that detail? I think that, that in the end of the day, this is, Devarim is Moshe's efforts. And as you say, sort of like mining the Torah, it's Moshe's way of taking out the pieces that, that he, that he wants to be there, that he sort of worked hard to uncover. And, to me, I don't know, I don't get so bothered or bogged down by a lot of the differences uh, because I think that ultimately there are so many reasons why somebody might shift the way they speak or the why they might speak about some, some event through their perspective, in the, even though when it was told in the, early in the Torah, it's from the perspective of God. Or I think that there are a lot of sort of rhetorical ways to often explain a lot of those differences. That explanation does not work for the differences between the laws in Sefer Dream versus the laws in in the book of Shemot. Uh, but for that, I, I would really, really point to, I mean, he had written it in earlier essays, but also it, he wrote it in, in book form in Animamim. Uh, sorry to repeat it again, but <laughs> but Josh Berman, Dr. Josh Berman's book, where he speaks about the, diff- the ways that law develops and that Moshe's recollection of a lot of those laws is already a an extra an extrapolation. There's already a shift, perhaps, in how the laws themselves will be observed later on, uh, and that is already reflected in the Book of Dvarim. Meaning, it's a lot less ironclad, written down the way we perceive law to be. Uh, that explanation speaks to me much more about the differences between them. Of course, ultimately, Chazal often choose to take both laws and harmonize them together and figure out an explanation that sort of fits both of them. But 
anyone who's ever written a speech uh, knows that they often make a lot of changes in order for something to sound better when it's spoken or in order to even sometimes dramatize something uh, for the sake of it being more powerful in the speech. And so those kind of rhetorical explanations, I know the Torah is much more important than like a speech at an event, you know, but, but to me, they're really significant because ultimately Moshe spoke this book to the people and they had to hear it waiting outside in the heat. I'm thinking of all the sweat dripping, you know, and like it had to be something that was going to give their attention. So, so to me, that often sort of explains away a lot of the differences, but that's without going into the specifics themselves. It's so interesting because the approach that you find comforting, I actually find more troublesome in the sense that going into the land and then also by extension, the way that I view Torah, I want it to be ironclad. I don't want there to be flexibility. I don't want to see at this stage that is so close to Har Sinai, there being anything but something definitive. And you're talking about Moshe's Nevuah, which is categorizes Aspaklaria Mi'ira as this very clear mirror, crystal clear image. And so if that's already a place of exegesis, and if that's already a place of development, then I feel like I'm in a lot of trouble in our day and age. But the idea that this isn't a development of law, but rather a perspective of law, and that we're asking why is the law said this way, as opposed to the law changing or being in a state of flux, it's the way that the law was given over. To me, that's a much more comforting way to look at it. And in that situation, I think that the discrepancies become really important, not just vis-a-vis Moshe's message, but then also in terms of how I'm to view the law specifically, if that makes sense. Rivi, I totally understand your hesitation about that. And I think that a lot of people wouldn't like it, which is why when we brought it up last year from Rav Tzadok, it was sort of like, yeah, it's kind of revolutionary. It does suggest some things that are very disturbing to people based on the way that law is understood today. And what I'll just say is that that stands out as it is. And I don't think that you have, I don't think anybody has to, the explanation that speaks to me doesn't have to speak to anybody else. But I do think that it is important to point out that the way that law develops now is very different than the way that law likely functioned then. So as we wind down this conversation, Ravi, there's a pursuit that repeats itself multiple times that really caught me this time around. For example, in the second chapter in the fifth verse, Okay, just a, a pure translation that you're going to be passing through the territory, right, of, of your kinsmen, the descendants of Esav. And he says, be careful not to provoke them, for I will not give you of their land so much as a foot can tread on. Right? He says this regarding Seir, he says this regarding the other lands of also of Ammon and Moab, that these lands don't belong to you. And be very careful. You were given a specific gift, and that's the land of Israel, but do not think about expanding your borders into these lands. And the specific explanation given for them is also 
because they're relatives, right? Because they're Esav, because they're the children of Lot, who he had with his daughters in that infamous story in the beginning, in the 19th chapter of Breshid. It sort of reminds me of the Isur of Baal Tosif, right? Just like you're not supposed to add on mitzvot. So God says, don't add on to the land I gave you. The land I gave you is just enough. Um, and I think that there's this really powerful message that we have here that as we're about to conquer and and use our strength, that we have to be really careful not to overdo it. And, and just by example, the Rashbam comments on this pasuk, uh, and he says, Pen the Rashbam says that this pasuk or these pasukim are coming to sort of uh, preempt some sort of very hubristic thought that the people might have and say, well, if God, you know, was giving us Eretz Israel, then why wouldn't he also give us the lands that we have to pass in order to get there? And so, and so he says that, therefore, God says, chill out. And the Rashbam brings what I believe is actually a uh, a midrash that Rashi brings in another form, and at the end he says that lichvod Avraham shekurvim hayu, that that all of these sort of I, I'm reserving right. Think of those reserved seats at like a, at a show. These reserved lands, they're all in order to respect Avraham. Meaning all these other descendants, you shouldn't think that they just disappeared and that they weren't important. They're important, and God also gives them their lands, and so. I just think there's something really powerful here about what God is saying. A, don't don't get too high on yourself. And don't try and take lands that belong to others. But there's also this really powerful message about respecting the families that we're related to. And so, you know, in, in Hebrew, we often call our Arab citizens in sort of slang, we call them cousins in, in Hebrew. And I think that, I mean, obviously there's, uh, familial justification and truth to that. But I think that this pasuk also sort of drives that point home, that these people have their own inheritance. Again, here it's Seir, Amon, and Moab. And I think it's also this very powerful warning that that God is giving us, that just just chill out. You have your own land. You don't need to take more than, you're, than that's given to you, and, and it's enough for what you need. It's so interesting because I think it comes full circle back to that story that you told about your kids, right? that we all, depending on how old we are and the perspectives that we come from, we all see the world really differently. And that kind of reminder of familial connection and that ultimately God's perspective is the most important one in terms of conquering the land and in terms of how we relate to other people, our moral compass really comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And so when Moshe is telling the people, putting them on the same page, I think a part of it is reminding the people that ultimately that's where it all comes from is God. But I also think that it's really comforting, right? Meaning if God cares so much about these kind of castaway children, if you will, then of course God's going to help us enter the land, right? Of course God is going to be with us. If God is telling us, don't touch this land because these people are sacred because they're connected to Abraham, then we who are in a continued covenant with God because of his relationship with Abraham and then his relationship with Yitzchak and then with Yaakov. So we should be reassured that Hashem has our back. And it's another way that we can chill out, right? 
we don't have to be worried as we're getting ready to enter the land. Yeah, totally. I think that there's a very, very significant reassurance that that is being given to the people here. And I think it's also a little bit of a promo, you know, when when Rush Bams's lawyer Achlevavcha, so of course that's a, a, a quote that's uh that's lifted from from Dvarim uh, later on. But I think that you know, we're very aware that one of the biggest pitfalls that's going to come in the coming years is this balance between kochi votsim yadi, right? That we have all this power in our own hands. Here we are conquering our own lands and making our own food. And and it's going to be a very, also not such a smooth transition from this very clear divine providential existence in the wilderness to a very human geared existence in the land of Israel. And so this sort of pasuk that's like, you know, just sort of sewn in there so so um, so seamlessly is there to sort of already sort of familiarize us with this idea that it's going to be very hard to remember that we we only need our portion and not anything else. When you're already in the schwung of of conquering, you're gonna want something something in addition. And so yeah, I think there's also there's also something that's comforting and reminds us that God has our back. And there's also almost like a, it's a warning. It's a warning to as we become more powerful and we sort of step into our boots that we shouldn't get too too haughty in that process. And I think it's kind of amazing that we today, currently in our modern times are in a place of history where that warning is relevant again. Meaning the idea that we're in a place today where that my power is in my hand and that I have the ability to conquer the world almost, or at least that's sometimes how it feels when we look at our soldiers and the accomplishment of our modern state. How amazing is it to live in a time in history where the Jewish people need to be reminded of that again and that we're back in that same place almost. And I think it's really kind of beautiful. Totally. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on for the first Parsha of this new Sefer and for passing on the torch and uh, for your beautiful insights. My pleasure. It was a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to having everyone hear you for the coming episodes. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.